Good morning. Good morning. Uh, another unpredictable weather day out there here in St. Louis. Uh, crazy weather patterns, the sun one minute, the warmth and uh, blustery winds and rain and whatnot. Uh, but um, God is good and, and I think it's so considerate that God made seasons. You know, it's just really nice of him to have done that. I mean, it could have been you know, summer or fall, like year-round, you know, forever, but, you know, he gives us this variety and the variety of nature and, and the creation. Uh, turn to Luke 3. We have a kind of a hefty verse we're reading this morning, um, and I wanted to say that um, the resources out there, they're really for us. Um, one of the books is What is Faith, maybe for a visitor or something, but I don't think uh, people coming into the YMCA here to work on a Sunday morning necessarily are going to grab those resources. So I want you to know that most of those resources there have been planned for you. They've been purchased in, and uh, with, with all of you in mind. And if you don't know what to grab, uh, if you want to grab something, my suggestion right off the top is the Westminster Shorter Catechism in Modern English. And it's just a great little outline of what we believe as a church. And it's, it, it is edifying because it asks and answers some basic fundamental questions of the faith. And these are questions that people often ask you, you know, what is God and what does it mean to be justified? And it answers all of those questions. That one's only $2. And again, you can just grab it, take it home, and when you, you know, when you pay your tithes or offering, you can just add two bucks onto it, I mean, to cover the cost. It's just the cost. We're not making a profit or anything like that. Uh, Luke chapter 3, um, I wanted to make uh, another statement about something I said last week. Um, I've been listening, and I listened to my sermons for years. I hated doing that because I, you know how you hate hearing your own voice? You know, everyone hates hearing their own voice. They go, man, do I really sound like that? That's terrible. Uh, but I got over that, and I've been listening to my own sermons for some time now, and, you know, catching, catching things that I said, like, oh, that was wrong. Like, about four weeks ago, I said something about David's general, Jehu. Mm, that's wrong. I mean, it's Joab. I meant to say Joab, but I said Jehu. And then last week, I said something about uh, judgment. I kind of ended the sermon and was talking about Jesus as Savior and judge. And it may have seemed like I was gloating over the fact that, you know, God's going to judge everybody. Uh, I wasn't, uh, but there was a lot of energy in that part of the sermon. Uh, So what I wanted to say, I wanted to clarify, and I think that someone clarifies it a little bit better than me, uh, Miroslav Volf comments, uh, that God's judgment is really the only thing that can comfort us when we're wronged and keep people from taking vengeance on each other. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, A Theological Exploration of Identity, Otherness, and Reconciliation, Miroslav Volf says, In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. He's advocating for personal nonviolence, right? We're not saying government shouldn't be able to enforce law and defend itself against enemies. But personally, we should have ourselves an attitude of nonviolence. To the person inclined to dismiss it, 
I suggest imagining that you're delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Excuse me, I'm sorry for the graphic details. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence, the thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love, soon you would discover that it takes quite the takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In other words, when we advocate that we shouldn't take vengeance on people, it's not because we don't believe God doesn't. It's precisely because we believe God does. I hope that makes sense. We're not retaliating against people who have wronged us because we believe that one day God will take vengeance on the wicked. Right? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. So, just a, just a clarification. Um, he's essentially saying it's pre- precisely because one day God will judge all people uh, that we can rest from our desire to be vindicated. So, I hope that clears things up a little bit. Luke chapter 3. And... Uh, continuing in our series in Luke, entitled, the name of the series, uh, The Story of Salvation. Uh, Verse 21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, um, and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jenai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kossam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of jo- Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mela, the son of Mena, the son of Mattathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nation, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, 
the Son of God. You thought I was going to mess up those names, but uh, I practiced about 20 times. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for your word. Speak to us powerfully through it this morning. Lord, we know that your word has, it's not a sacrament, but it has a close to sacramental quality to it in ministering to our hearts, even the things that seem obscure like this genealogy. We know, O God, that you sent truly your Son into the world. Let us now uh, glean and uh, grapple with the meaning of that. Convict our hearts and convince us of the word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Um, in verse 21, we read that when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized and was praying. So picture this, if you will. There's all these people in line waiting to be baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. So if you can imagine, here are these you know, people who are faithful, and they're repenting, and they're standing in line to be baptized, and John is you know, up there, in the Jordan, and he's baptizing people, and Jesus, God in the flesh, is also standing in line. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a sermon series of its own, right? You know, God stood in line, or something like that. Jesus is standing in line, and the people around him, they don't even know who he is. He's just standing in line. I mean, can you imagine that? You know, excuse me, the line is moving, sir, can you? Oh, oh. You know, it's, it's, it's God in the flesh, you know, and he's, he's waiting in line, standing probably, you know, uh, in the scorching sun, waiting his turn to be baptized. God incarnate standing in line, in line next to you. Uh, some of you uh, are old enough to remember the George Burns movie, Oh God, from the 1970s with, yeah, with, with uh, John Denver. Do you remember th- those series of movies? Well, there's this clip where uh, George Burns, who is God, uh, you know, is standing in a grocery store line, and he appears to John Denver, and you know, he's an old man, you know, uh, he's 80, and he's about you know five foot one, and he's got big thick glasses on, you know, and he's wearing you know like a you know like you know he's wearing like a members only jacket or something, and he's it's like you know that's God, and John Denver says to him, why don't you appear to people so they can believe in you, and he says. You know, if I appeared to people the way I really am, you know, they'd die of hysterics. You know, they, they would just, they'd be overcome. So, I'll, so I'm, I'm appearing to you, you know, like I am right now, you know. So Jesus is in a form where people can handle it, you know. He's just a, he just looks like a regular person waiting in line to be baptized. Um, Jesus' humility and self-abasement is staggering. It really is. You know, Philippians 2, 7 says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being, the bo- being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, right, we know, we've got our theology together. He's the second person of the Trinity, had all power and glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit in, in eternity past, and empties himself of that glory to come into the earth, humbling himself, being fashioned and formed in the likeness of a man and of a servant. That's mind-boggling when you think about it. 
that God did that. So the question you might be asking is, why was Jesus baptized? Right? We know who he is. Right? We have the benefit of uh, you know, centuries of theological reflection. Why was Jesus baptized? Uh, obviously, he didn't need to be baptized. He didn't need to repent. His 30 years of living up till this point, we know, have been sinless. Right? Everyone is standing in line receiving John's baptism of repentance. Uh, but Jesus doesn't need to repent. Well, Luke's, Luke's narrative is actually kind of... Uh, minimalistic, so we have to refer to some of the other gospel writers to give us a clearer picture. And Matthew says in Matthew 3.14 that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus answered him and says, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. One of the reasons that John says this statement to Jesus is Jesus you know, you know, comes to, to John and John recognizes that there's something about this person who's been standing in line that makes him different than everyone else he's baptized and everyone else waiting in line and he recognizes Jesus' divinity. And he says... I can't baptize you. I need to be baptized by you. Um, and, and so this testimony, this statement that John makes is essentially saying Jesus was sinless. Saying, I don't, I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. But he, and, and John the Baptist, right, this prophet that Jesus said, that there has not risen one greater than him, right? Jesus said, of men born of a woman, there is none greater than John the Baptist. And John says, I'm not even worthy to baptize you. There is none greater. He knew himself, John knew that he himself wasn't sinless. He says, I have need to be baptized of you, he told Jesus, and you come to me? He's essentially saying, I'm only a prophet of God. You know, as, as special as it meant to be a prophet of God, he was saying, I'm only a prophet of God. I'm sinful like everyone else I baptize. But you're the son of God, you're sinless, is essentially what John is saying. He's saying to Jesus, you're not a sinner. I'm baptizing sinners, you're not a sinner. What's instructive for us to recognize is, one answer to why Jesus was baptized is Jesus is identifying with sinners. Isaiah 53 and 12 says that the Messiah was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Jesus' baptism is this, represents this willing identification of the sinless Son of God with sinful people he came to save. Jesus' baptism is an act of solidarity with repentant kingdom seekers. That's why it's kind of hard to glean from his baptism any example of what baptism should look like 
or the method or the mode because his baptism is unique. This was not someone who needed to be baptized because he was sinless perfection, the son of God. And what Jesus is doing then, he's identifying with sinners as an act of solidarity. Um, Have you ever known someone who shaved their head because a loved one or a friend got cancer and the treatment made that person's hair fall out, right? And their best friend or their spouse, they shave their head too as just an act of solidarity saying, I'm with you in this, right? When 9-11 happened, um, there were images on the television of George Bush, who was the president at the time, walking down the street with Rudy Giuliani, the mayor of New York, and the fire chief and the police chief, and then there's this image where he has a hard hat and a bullhorn, and he's standing in the rubble, right? This is the most powerful man in the world for all intents and purposes, but he's standing with all of these people, dirty and covered in dust, in the rubble of the trade center as an act of solidarity with the people saying, I'm with you. And that's what Jesus is doing here when he gets baptized. Jesus is demonstrating his unity with the righteous, those who are repenting and acknowledging their sins. There's something really powerful that happens when people recognize their sins. I mean, the beginning of, the beginning of faith and the beginning of recognizing sin, repentance, I mean, those, those two things always seem to go hand in hand, right? You know, when people... When, when people Uh, struggle with the idea, you know, when you tell them about sin, we know faith is is not really working in them. But when you hear someone who may not even necessarily be a believer in the sense we think, and what I mean by that is, you know, they're not there yet, they're on their way, and they're, they're, they're recognizing sin, that's a good place to be. That's a really good place to be. Um, I don't know if I told you the story, I met a Muslim tailor here in town. Los Angeles, we don't have tons of Muslims. We don't even have many because most of the immigrant population is from Central America and they tend to be mostly uh, uh, Roman Catholics or Charismatics. Uh, And so when I came here to St. Louis, I was kind of surprised to see, you know, a, a, a substantial Muslim population. And I have not really interacted with Muslims much at all in my life because being in California for all these years. And so um, I was at the gym one day. I think it was the, the Millers. I think I shared this story with the Millers. Uh, dropped my daughter off at youth group and wanted to go to the gym on a Sunday night and went to the one there on Manchester. I don't know if that's Ellisville or Wildwood. I don't know what it is. And a guy walks up to me and he says, um, are you from Jordan? And I said, no, but my name is Jordan. And uh, I could tell he was struggling to identify where he knew me from. Anyways, a couple weeks earlier, I went into an alteration shop to get a pair of jeans altered in Frontenac. um, And he was working in the back and and overheard the conversation and uh, probably saw the ticket on the jeans that said Jordan. And I said, no, my name is Jordan. And, you know, when people, you know, nowadays when people approach you, you don't know what's going on. You know, it's, you know. That's just the world we live in. You have to be suspicious of people. But he was really friendly, and he said, I'm a tailor. I've been doing it for 20 years. You know, here's my card if you need anything. And I said, oh, great. And I bought a couple pants a week or two later, invited him over. Or I said, you know, where can we meet to do this? You know, know, like like a dark alley or something. You know, where where do you want to take the measurements? He says, well, I can come to your house. You can come to my house. 
And I said, okay, well, you come to my house. And I told Maribel and the kids, why don't you guys go out? Because you know, I don't even, I don't know this guy very well. He comes over, he's super friendly, and he tells me he's a Muslim. So I'm thinking, oh, this guy's a Muslim. And, but he's really, really friendly, and he's from Pakistan. And we've gotten a conversation about the way Christians are treated in Pakistan. And he says, yes, yes. He says, you know, Muslims uh, over there, you know, they, they require rules from other people that they themselves can't keep. I thought, well, that sounds familiar. You know, that sounds like the law and the Pharisees. And he said, I like America because the rules seem a little easier here. And I said, well, you know, that's true. And, and uh, I said, so do you go to mosque? He goes, oh, yes, every Friday. And I'm thinking, well, this guy's a religious observant Muslim. I said, you know, are you a Shi- Shiite or a Sunni? He says, I'm a Sunni. I said, oh, and I'm thinking to myself, like, this is, I've got a Sunni Muslim in my house. This is weird. And... <laughs> And he says to me, he says, when we were talking about the rules in Pakistan and Sharia law and all those things, he says, I think it's in our nature to break the rules. And I would just, oh, you know, like throw my hand. This guy's got good theology here. I mean, you know, it's, I'm two seconds away from a gospel presentation. But I thought, you know, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on this guy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a relationship. And we've had lunch already, and, we, and I gave him another pair of pants to... But anyways, I say all that to say, I'm sorry... I say all that to say that there's this recognition of sin that I know that God is at work. He's open. He was friendly. He asked me about my faith. He, thought, are you, he said, are you just doing it for the money? I said, no, it's, I really believe. He says, you really believe that there's doubt? And I go, well, there's always a little doubt, and you're always trying to overcome that doubt. Anyway, uh, his name is Alim Siddiqui. So pray for Alim that... that our relationship can flourish or I can share the gospel with him. But I felt the presence of the Lord in our conversation and getting back to our sermon in our text this morning, Jesus is present with all of these people acknowledging that they're sinners. That's a very powerful and instructive thing for us to come to grips with. Jesus is present when people acknowledge their sins. And that's exactly what's going on here. But Jesus is baptized, and it's to tell us something about the importance of baptism. You all should have received an email this morning that we sent out with a link to two articles on baptism by Dr. Jack Collins from the seminary. So if you're curious more about baptism, its theology, its connection to the Old Testament, I sent out a two-part, um, two, two-part article um, uh, in, an, in a theological journal from Dr. Jack Collins on baptism. Um, but this ought to show us that uh, baptism is really important. Um, <clears throat> what's going on here when Jesus is baptized is that Jesus is essentially being commissioned for his ministry. So we're, we're grappling with why was Jesus baptized. The first thing Jesus, is, Jesus does at the beginning of his ministry is to get baptized because baptism is so incredibly significant. Um, and this is less obvious but also important. Baptism was an anointing for divine service. When we baptize people, we're saying this person is set apart for life in the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus is baptized, it's the beginning and commissioning with the empowering of the Spirit of his ministry. It's the beginning of his ministry. And God speaks out from heaven as witness to that. 
And as far as the crowds are concerned, like we mentioned a moment ago, Jesus is just another person who's come to be baptized. He exits the Jordan River. He's standing on the banks praying. So imagine these faithful people. They've been baptized. They're standing on the side of the Jordan River, and they're, you know, they're praying. And Jesus is standing there with them, and they're just praying. Jesus is praying. And he receives the Father's endorsement and enablement. And we read that three things happen. And the first is, the Bible says, the heavens opened. Literally, it means the sky cracked. The sky, God cracked the sky. And it's further evidence of who Jesus is. You know, it's not enough that Mary told people, oh, the Holy Spirit came to me when I was still a virgin. No, God is going to further, um, uh, you know, further support Jesus' uh, identity. And so there's this a miraculous event here where the sky opens up. What's important about this for us as we understand the person of God is God is not only transcendent, right? He's beyond our world and in the heavens, but he's also imminent. And what that means is God is with us. When he cracks the sky and speaks, not only that, but even the presence of Jesus in the earth, God is demonstrating that he's with us. He wants to know us. He wants to be in relationship with us. And this is a point we'll come to a little later on in our sermon, but God is with us. He's near. He's not a distant deity observing from, you know, light years away or in another dimension. He transcends the barrier between our world and his, right? Bette Midler got it wrong. You know, God is watching from a distance. Sorry, Bette. God is actually with us present with us, close to us, in relationship with us. Secondly, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit descended. Jesus receives the empowering by the Spirit for his ministry to proclaim the good news, but this empowering comes in the form of a dove. Now, most of us think a dove landed on his shoulder. We probably all think that. It doesn't say a dove landed on our shoulder, landed on his shoulder. It says that the spirit descended like a dove, which means that there was something bodily, something visible, and it, it had the shape of a dove, but it was not actually a dove. Um, a dove is a symbol of peace. So the shape of a dove, there is significance to that. A dove is a symbol of peace. And Jesus' ministry would be characterized by peace and gentleness. Isaiah 42 and 2 says, He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10.1. And then in Matthew 5 and 5, it says, The meek will inherit the earth. You know, when you come to Jesus, he meets you meek and humble. You know, he's not the drill sergeant. 
you know. All right, now shape up. You know, that's, that's the world's concept of what we're, what we're peddling. We're peddling, you know, rules, like I mentioned earlier, and someone who's going to keep you in line. But Jesus meets us meek and humble and gentle. His ministry is gentle. He said, learn of me and take on my yoke. My burden is easy and my yoke is light. And then thirdly and finally, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. All the Trinity participated in Jesus' baptism. Right? We're Trinitarians. We believe in the Trinity. The Trinity participated in Jesus' baptism. The Son had confirmed his own kingship by saying, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, in verse 15. And the Spirit confirmed his right of Messiahship by resting on him, in verse 16. And the final aspect of Jesus' coronation, or commissioning, was the Father's confirming word. Of this one who willingly identified himself with sinners by his baptism, who was marked by the Holy Spirit as the dove of sacrifice, the Father now says this. He says, this is my beloved, note that word, beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The word beloved connotes a deep and rich and profound relationship. And it's here used of the Father's great love for His Son. But it's also used elsewhere for God's love of believers. When Paul writes to the saints in his epistles, he refers to them as beloved or loved of God. Jesus is the Father's beloved above all of these, though, the rest of us. And Jesus is beloved apart from whom no other could ever be beloved. We're blessed, we say, in the beloved. God forgives us because of his beloved, Jesus. We have salvation because of Jesus Christ. God hears our prayers because of his son, Jesus. The love he has for his son is communicated to us because we're in Christ. God hears us because of his son. He forgives us because of his son. He has mercy on us because of his son. And we're ultimately saved from the penalty of our sins, the wrath of God, because of his son. Because his son is beloved. And this triune relationship between the father, the son, and the spirit is a model of community for us. The Trinity is one of my favorite doctrines of the Christian faith. And it's also a litmus test for orthodox belief, for right belief. You know, we're orthodox in our beliefs because we're Nicene Christians. We affirm the Nicene Creed. And because we affirm the Nicene Creed, we're Trinitarians. There's a little theology for you. And the the Nicene Creed goes like this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. What a beautiful Trinitarian statement of our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
from all eternity, the Trinity, which is pictured here in this passage of Scripture, existed in love. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have existed in eternity past for all, of e- all eternity in love for one another. In love for one another. God isn't a solitary individual, but he's a divine community. God, this is from Tim Chester in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. God is persons in relationship. And because we're made in the image of the triune community, right? God says, let us make man in our image. We're to be in relationship and community with each other. You may think that you come into this building to hear the word of God and to take the sacraments. That's partially true. But you come here every Sunday to be in community and relationship with each other. God has not called us to be islands to ourselves. He has not called us to be, you know, uh, to live individualistic lives. In fact, your connection and relationship to other people sort of makes you what you are. And so when we think about, you know, us as a church and growing as a church, before that can happen, you have to be in community and relationship with each other. And if that doesn't happen, then that can't happen. I want to tell you that. That's what God calls us to. And when we act in a way that diminishes those relationships, you know, we dehumanize ourselves. God is a relational being. And he desires relationship with us, his creation. And Jesus, his agent of redemption, came to bring humanity back into relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you provided a means for us to be restored to relationship with you. We thank you, O God, that you bring us back to you in the person and work of your Son who is beloved. It is because of your love for the Son that we are made right, we are forgiven, and you have mercy on us. And so we pray and we ask now, because of Jesus, have mercy on us. Help us, Lord, to love each other and be in communion and relationship with each other and build community for the glory of your name in your son. We pray, O God, we ask these things. Amen.